begin session three on this four-part series on the Declaration of Principle that as Scottish Baptists, as uh, the churches hold to. And the first session looked at the first Declaration of Principle. Jesus as Lord, God and Saviour is the sole and absolute authority across every aspect of our lives. And in particular with regards what we believe and how we live that belief out. We emphasise the the who, that we follow and give our lives to Jesus Christ. That the Holy Scriptures reveal him to us, as well as the fuller picture of the work of the Father and the Spirit. So that was the who. And then we touched on the how, how we know him. That every local church, not government, not distant spiritual hierarchy, But every church, every local church, has the liberty to read the scriptures and interpret them and administer them under the guidance of the Spirit. And the what, what we do together, that it's the role of believers to interpret. Because as we see in Ephesians 1, that those are the ones that are sealed with the Spirit of God and that the only way to understand scripture is by the Spirit. We've often heard it said that this well-known three-part dynamic of belong, believe, behave. And I think that has its limitations in this dynamic because we understand that in order to believe, we have to have the Spirit in us. And in order to belong, we belong by the Spirit. And so it's very difficult for us to, to belong if we don't believe, if we don't have the Spirit. So the Word of God is revealed to us by the Spirit and it reveals Christ to us. Now why do it any other way? The Holy Spirit and the plain reading of God's Word provide for us a remarkable consistency. So why do it any other way? Let the Word of God speak. Then the last session on the second Declaration of Principle, part one, we're going to complete that to, uh, in this session. But we introduced the, the thrust of Christian baptism as immersion in water into the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That, that through this vehicle of baptism, there is a uniting with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we brought in Romans 6's voice. Romans 6's voice, uh, Paul teaching of being buried with Christ through the submersion in the waters of baptism, then raised with Christ as you're raised out of the water. But, and it's important to emphasize, it's not the vehicle of immersion in water that saves. Because we understand everything through interpretation of scripture, we look at examples of people, the thief on the cross, a man who was not saved through immersion in water because it wasn't possible. He was 
On the cross, he was breathing his last. He reached out to Christ and Christ welcomed him. So therefore, it's the repentance towards God and faith in Jesus Christ that saves. We know that Ephesians 2 tells us that we are saved by grace through faith. Faith, that is, trusting that we, who were separated from God through our sin, can find atonement for those sins through trusting in the work of Christ on the cross. And within that, there's an acknowledgement that we are sinful and we are in need of a saviour. We've said this a lot in our church over the past number of months, especially that that you do not realise the need for a saviour until you realise that you are a sinner. And in that trust in Christ, uh, we find the, the hope that we hold to. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. So we, we know that Jesus is the means to new life and hope. Then we read the justification for that faith, that Jesus died for our sins, that's personal, it's individual, and that he was buried and then raised from the dead. And we know that according to the scriptures, so that takes us back to the first declaration of principle statement. We understand that that we can make bold claims because of the plain reading of scripture. The Gospels themselves declare the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. 1 Corinthians 15, that we've touched on in the past two sessions, the earliest church creed, written by Paul in in AD 57, roughly, we would estimate, but it was pre-existent in verbal and oral transmission, possibly as early as the 30s, the same decade that Jesus died, was buried and resurrected. Paul was told it before he told the people of Corinth. Uh, Now, the question then is, where did Paul hear it? Very possibly he heard it from Barnabas. And then the question then is, who did Barnabas hear it from? Barnabas heard it from somebody who shared faith with him. So in the last session, we touched on the whole declaration of principle statement. The name of Jesus, the Trinity, the need for repentance, the need for faith, the centrality of death, burial, and resurrection. And we also touched on the roots of baptism in its Jewish context, which lays a foundation for this session. And this session is going to focus primarily on what is Christian baptism, specifically what makes this thoroughly Jewish practice distinctly Christian. Now, when we answer that question, we could find ourselves simply stating the mechanics of it. I go into a a baptismal tank. Just a side note on that. When I got baptised, I wore the wrong trousers. You've got to be careful what you wear when you go into a baptismal uh, tank, into the baptistry, because I wore trousers that inflated at the point of entry into the water. And I was in a really warm room the night of my baptism, and I had been dabbing my forehead with uh, with a piece of uh, tissue because I was really nervous because I, you know, I'd trained as a teacher. So I was happy to speak in certain contexts, but I was really nervous to speak in this moment. So I was dabbing my face with tissue, put it in my pocket, got into the baptistry and uh, into the tank. And my shorts, my kind of long shorts inflated, my pockets emptied and all tissue started floating out round. It was really awkward. So, wear the right trousers. So, but we could be we could be uh, in the danger of just simply stating the mechanics of it. We get into the, the baptistry, 
we say some words, we get wet all over and then we walk out. But that's, I would say, a thoroughly unhelpful description because it doesn't factor in the richness of the Jewish tradition, which is also carried over into the early church, nor does it consider full immersion baptism's beauty and significance, uh, the act of itself, and why it's encouraged and even, we might say, commanded in the scriptures. What would be a better description then of Christian baptism? Well, one which frames it in its Jewish roots, yeah, but one that also speaks to the revealed reality of God in the form of Jesus Christ, that he has been revealed in the flesh and the active reality of the Holy Spirit, not just in a select few people as found in in the Old Testament dynamic of the Holy Spirit's engagement with God's people, but rather in the lives of every single new covenant believer. So let me say that again. What we have with baptism is, yes, yeah, framed in its Jewish roots, but also it speaks to the revealed reality of God in Jesus Christ and the active reality of the Holy Spirit in every single believer. Now, much has been written by Baptists on what Christian baptism is, and so I want in this session to combine their thoughts with the Jewish roots voice and see what we come up with. So, first point, what is Christian baptism? Well, it's a vehicle, like we touched on last session, a vehicle used to declare union with Christ. And we touched on Romans 6 last session. That the vehicle of full immersion, that in that vehicle of full immersion we are declaring union with Christ in his death, burial and resurrection. So just as he died and was raised to new life, so are we. It's also a vehicle for physical, yes, but more importantly, ritual cleansing, as per our Jewish roots. We can turn in that whole thrust to Leviticus 14 through to 16. Now, you know, that book that we so often go to in our devotional time uh, with God. It's an incredible book, Leviticus, and it does teach us so much about so many things. But one of the, the key things that we can draw from 14 to 16 is that there are numerous examples of why a person should use this vehicle of ritual immersion. We, we have issues of infection. We have a woman's monthly uh, cycle. We have dealing with sickness. We have the general sanctification of people and objects using ritual immersion. Now, what we find in, of course, Leviticus is God's law. God's law. But when we read the law, it's good practice for us to see if that law is repeated in some way in the New Testament. Because if we're under the new covenant, it's important for us to understand where the law of God is is spoken within that new uh, covenant context. So let's turn to Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 16. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 16 together. When we think about the law, reading the law in Leviticus, what do we see in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 16? This is the covenant I will make with them after those days. So this is pointing towards the new covenant. The Lord says, I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. So this emphasis, this new covenant 
emphasis that the author of Hebrews is writing here in chapter 10 is that the new covenant is emphasizing that the law is written on our hearts and in our minds. So when we look at Leviticus 14 through 16, we see how ritual immersion can be used in that sense. We don't reject the law because the new covenant simply says that the law is written on our hearts and on our minds. So let's turn to Acts chapter 22 together, verse 16. Acts 22 and verse 16. And what it says in that is that, And now, why are you delaying? Get up and get baptised. And wash away your sins, calling on his name. So what we find is that in the Old Testament context, there was a a ritual immersion for infection, for monthly cycles, for dealing with sickness, for sanctifying people and objects. And what we see is that that pattern is repeated. And it's repeated in in the sense of getting up, being baptized, wash away your sins and calling on his name. So cleansing of our sins after a response to the gospel, that message is paired with the vehicle of baptism. That's just one example. So it's a vehicle for ritual cleansing. It also marks a shift into active service in God's kingdom. And we're going to unpack that more in a minute. But we see the guidance laid down in Leviticus for the priesthood. And we can look to Leviticus chapter 22 if you want to know more about that. But the ritual immersion of the whole body in water. And, and what we see is that that voice of the priesthood is brought over into the New Covenant, into New Testament context, specifically to us all becoming priests. So let's look at a couple of examples of where the Word of God touches on that. The first we can look at is First Peter. In 1 Peter 2, 1 Peter 2, and it's verse 9. And what we see is this. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his possession, so that you may proclaim the praises of the one who called you out of darkness into his marvellous light. So that verse is emphasising that as we transition from the old way, being in Adam, to the new way, being in Christ, we are being called out of darkness and into his marvellous light. We become a royal priesthood. And, and so we're all priests. We all become priests as we embrace Christ. Let's look at Revelation 1. Revelation 1, uh, verses 5, or well, the second part of verse 5, into verse 6. Revelation 1. And what it says here is that to him who loves us and has set us free from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom Priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So Christian baptism, at the very least, mirrors the entering into the priestly service that we see from Leviticus 22. It is manifest in variety of ways among us. Now, we all step into the service of God's kingdom when we respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Everybody will have a different function and role. We think about 1 Corinthians 12, Ephesians 4, the emphasis of every joint supplying, that we're all gifted by the Spirit, uh, however the Spirit determines, in order to enable the body of Christ to function. But that service, that service as part of the body, to the body, 
uh, comes through, um, yes, the repentance and the faith. It comes through the Holy Spirit. But there's something of that emphasis that we find from Leviticus 22 that actually in advance of stepping into that, that role of service, we are ritually immersed. And then we combine this with the public profession of faith. This consistently repeated scriptural call for us to be willing to publicly profess our faith in Jesus Christ, lived out in the scripture in in many contexts, including at the point of baptism. Now, we know Acts chapter 2. We won't touch on that again uh, in this session, but let's turn to 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy, and we're going to look at chapter 6 together and verse number 12. So 1 Timothy 6 verse 12. Here's what it says. Paul writing here says, Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of eternal life to which you were called and about which you have be, you have made a good confession in the presence of many witnesses. So that good confession that you've made in the presence of many witnesses, that public confession in front of others. Now, we read this, commentators such as uh, Dr. Bob Utley, um, who is an excellent uh, biblical commentator. He's got incredible materials online, freebiblecommentary.org, I think is his website, and he's got great stuff on YouTube as well. People like Bob Utley equate this to Timothy's baptism because the words Jesus is Lord would have been uttered there. So fight the good fight of faith, take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you have made a good confession in the presence of many witnesses. What is that good confession? Jesus is Lord. That's why we encourage people to share their testimony publicly at their baptism service. It is, in essence, a public rejection of the ways of the world and a public embracing of the ways of the kingdom. It takes that idea of private faith, which is nowhere to be found in Scripture, and it makes a public declaration of allegiance coupled with the public act of dying to self and being raised with Christ. I love it. I love it. So, also, an opportunity to be introduced to and filled by the Holy Spirit. Now, careful here, I've got to be careful here because I say opportunity rather than requirement or prerequisite. Yes, Act 2.32 tells us that this is a means of encountering and being filled with the Spirit. But what we see if we turn to Acts chapter 10, verse 44 to 48, let's read that together. Acts chapter 10, verses 44 to 48, Peter was still speaking While he was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came down on all those who heard the message. The circumcised believers who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on the Gentiles. For they heard them speaking in tongues and declaring the greatness of God. Then Peter responded, Can anyone withhold water and prevent these people from being baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? So, that shows us that some are filled with the Spirit before they're baptised. So we don't want to be dogmatic about when these things happen, but we know that baptism can be a vehicle for the filling, the empowering and equipping of the Spirit. 
We don't limit God to a formula. But it's important to note that the people in Acts 10 were then subsequently baptised upon their hearing and receiving of Peter's gospel message. The two can go, often go, in the word, hand in hand in the scripture. We also see, if we turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 13, that we are all baptized by one spirit into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and we were all given one spirit to drink. Now, the valid question to ask here is, which kind of baptism is it talking about? Is it the baptism of the spirit? or the baptism of water. Now, we can make an argument, I think, for, for, for both. Because as we've said, that these two things often went hand in hand in Scripture. People were fully immersed and they encountered the Spirit. Or they encountered the Spirit and they were fully immersed. What we know is that believers were baptized in both. Not always at the same time, but very often. So it's practically and historically accurate to combine both dynamics. So if that is what Christian baptism is, then the important next question is, why do we champion it as an important part of a believer's journey? Paul Beasley Murray offers three simple reasons why we should consider full immersion baptism. The first reason is it's commanded by Christ, and we know that from Matthew 28. Matthew 28, they go into all the world, preaching the gospel and baptizing people in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The invitation to do that, the command, we might say, to do that. The second point Paul Beasley Murray notes is it's demonstrated by Christ. Matthew chapter 3, Matthew chapter 3, and I love what this portion of God uh, speaks to us. Perhaps we haven't ever thought about it in this way, but let me let me unpack this a little bit for us. Matthew chapter 3, verses 13 to 17. Jesus came from Galilee to John at the Jordan to be baptized by him. But John tried to stop him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and yet you come to me. Jesus answered him, Allow it for now, because this is the way for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then John allowed him to be baptized. When Jesus was baptized, he went up immediately from the water. The heaven suddenly opened and he saw. Uh, then he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming down on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Jesus himself submits to the waters of baptism. Have you ever wondered why? Why did he do that? Well, let's put our Jewish root hat on again here. Was he in need of ritual cleansing? And I would propose no, because he was, he was without sin. So he was not in need of ritual cleansing because he was perfect. He was sinless. Was he declaring a union with any part of the Godhead? Let's think back to why people in that time, in that context, would be ritually immersed. Was he needing to repent and go through ritual cleansing? No, because he was sinless. Was he declaring union with any part of the Godhead? Well, obviously not with himself, but yes, the Father and the Spirit are present. Was he marking a shift 
into a new phase of active service to God's kingdom, namely a priestly ministry. Well, what did we say? That the priests in the Old Testament, when they stepped into their their duties, they were ritually immersed. Is Jesus about to step into a new and active phase of service for God's kingdom in a priestly ministry? Absolutely. And was he, thinking back to the last session, about to enter into a marriage covenant? And this is what I love. Was he entering into a marriage covenant? Absolutely. As he stepped into this active service in the priestly ministry, he was preparing himself for his bride, the church. Was there a tangible encounter in this moment with the Holy Spirit at his baptism? Yes, we've just read that. And was he about to unite with the wider body of God's people? Absolutely, he was becoming the head of the whole body. So you can see how the Old Testament speaks to what he's doing and our understanding of baptism uh, is, is, is birthed out of all of these truths. Now there's huge potential here for the whole teaching on this and in light in Philippians 2 where Jesus willingly emptied himself so as not to um, exploit his incredible power, that he willingly submitted himself to death, which I believe helps us understand why Jesus said the words in Matthew 3:15. this is the way for us to fulfill all righteousness. There's huge potential here for a whole teaching on that, but that's for another time. But it's like in, in this moment, the moment of Christ's baptism, there is a public and prophetic inauguration which will reach its climax at the cross and then beyond it. Let me say that again. Jesus' baptism, it's like this is a public and prophetic inauguration which will reach its climax on the cross and beyond it. I don't believe Jesus' nature changed at baptism. I believe that he was born of a virgin, that he was God in flesh from the moment of conception through development in the womb, through birth, childhood and up to this moment. So I don't believe that there was a change in nature at his baptism, but I do believe that this was, as we've listed here, that he was uh, declaring publicly a union with the Father and the Spirit, that he was shifting into a new phase of active service and priestly ministry, that he was entering into a marriage covenant, and that he was uniting with the wider body of God's people by becoming the head. So, finally, full immersion baptism was a practice of the early church, as recorded in the scriptures. Over the years, it has taken different forms and again it must be noted that it isn't the water that saves but rather the repentance and faith. So for all our brothers and sisters that are part of our church and the churches out there that have been through an alternative vehicle of baptism uh, and have repented of their sins and trusted in Christ, we want to speak honour to them and we call them brothers and sisters. 
But we, as, as the Baptist family, we champion the vehicle of full immersion as this beautiful picture of all that was celebrated in the Jewish community, all that is seen in the life of Christ, and all that is encouraged of us through God's holy scriptures. And so let me say this, if you have not been fully immersed and you would like to, to make that public declaration for all of the reasons that we have considered, then come and speak to us. And if you're listening to this online and you, you haven't ever been fully immersed, I want to encourage you to think about it. It doesn't make you a better Christian. It doesn't change your status with God in heaven, but it, it brings a richness. We, we might even say a, a moment of commissioning for you to step into your priestly role in a new and active way. As you're lowered into the water, you die with Christ. As you're raised out of the water, you are uniting with him in his resurrection. It's a beautiful picture of the gospel. And, and so it's, a, it's something to be encouraged, absolutely. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the chance to examine what Christian baptism by full immersion is and why it's important, why it's important for us to be passionate about championing this. Father, I, I pray that you would help us to understand your truth, that your spirit would lead us into that truth, and that we may live out our faith in accordance with your word and in line and keeping with your heart. In Jesus' mighty name. Thank you.